0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pell Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Loose Cannon PCs. Bush Wars and Fall of Delta Green. The Belle Epoch Paris Morgue. And Chicago's Clamshell Baby.
1: Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh
0: So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin.
1: Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it.
0: If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out.
1: Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon
0: is available now, so take your place at the Frontier of Style today.
1: You can learn more at atlas-games.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But... What's this, Robin? Is it a a Die 30 in the dice and those those aren't even cool ranch doritos. Those are like some kind of weird promotional doritos released to tie into a movie. And hey, hey, Peter Frampton, he's playing a sitar. What is this, Robin? Something wacky's happening. Perhaps it is something wacky that in this case is driven by A character choice, namely a character choice to play someone who is, to use the common parlance of 250 years ago, a loose cannon. And by loose cannon, I'm assuming we do not mean the lone wolf character who we have already dealt with in a previous installment of the Gaming Hut. But we are talking, in this case, the sort of unpredictable bounce off the walls, what is often called in ludology, the Scooby, right?
0: (laughs) Well, I I think there's... I think a lot of loose cannons, uh, or a lot of lone wolves, actually, are loose cannons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's some shady... Yeah, there's over... Scooby
1: who think they're Wolverine, which is right. obviously the best imaginable combination of people. <laughs> right.
0: And so we're talking about the kind of character who in... Rod Iru Ruiz and really ready. You know, in, in your uh, <laughs> bank robbery movie, you know, there's always the one guy who they're bringing along who they shouldn't bring along. Right. And it's hard to even think of a movie script where there's a group of criminals and one of them isn't the one who's a, who's a, a, a loose cannon. And so unlike the lone wolf, who is, I guess the big difference between these two tropes then is that uh, the one is one who goes off on his own, is ruthlessly efficient and does his thing uh, and perhaps does not take instructions from others. And this is the one who's stays with the group yet makes mistakes possibly due to their psychological makeup and uh, <laughs> sticks around and so that for them uh, everything goes wrong it's not you a loose cannon you're in narrative traditions anyway that's not supposed to go well and uh, things go awry and of course the issues of the lone wolf and the loose cannon are somewhat similar in that you can decide to do this as a player uh, without necessarily getting buy-in from the rest of the group and it may be something of a source of uh, frustration to them. So in our script here, I'm talking about GMing, but do we want to talk about how to how to be the good version of the loose cannon character rather than being the loose cannon player before we move on to uh, GMing techniques?
1: I mean, I have, and I think most long-running gaming groups have a Scooby of one kind or another. My Scooby's name is Zach, and (laughs) he is a loose cannon in, I think, the best way that you can be a loose cannon as all my players are the best versions of themselves they can be in that he you know given a you know a two-dimensional map will look for the third dimension he is the guy who thinks what if we you know end around it here some of it is zach play you know working the refs as they say playing to my known cyclims some of it is just a good creative mind. Some of it is having been in my game for several, you know, probably decades by now. And so he's, he's used to sort of the narrative constraints that it operates under. And he's uh he, he watches enough other narrative or reads enough other narrative that he can work around that. So he's, he's the best kind of Scooby because he's still the talking dog in the mystery show. It, it's still what, but also there's more of a, Oh, element to his, you know, when he proposes some ridiculous idea, uh, for example, in literally this last uh, adventure that we ran in my Agents of Saber Supers game, they've been hunting a sort of a Viet Cong green arrow supervillain who attempted an assassination on their watch. They don't like him. They tracked him down to his hideout in the Ironwood forests around Vin in North Vietnam. They tracked him down, beat him up, dragged him away. Surely now they will either turn him over to the North Vietnamese or they will take him back to the South to turn over to Diem, who he tried to assassinate. And that won't end well. So, of course, Zach's solution is let's recruit this guy to sneak us into the big heroin ring that we've been trying to bust up. And and, uh, we know he's good at sneaking into stuff and mounting ambushes. He hates heroin dealers as much as we do. Let's just team up, and this is not a solution that anyone, including me, had thought of. And he did, and obviously the you know the the, the NPC, the Green Arrow guy, Nothan, was yeah, absolutely. Instead of be executed, kill heroin dealers. This is this is not even an offer. This is an obvious
0: right. So obviously in the TV show, this is a, a an actor with a recurring role, and yeah run out of villain things for him to do so now he has to do a face turn
1: yeah he, he got a lots of really good um uh, fan right in and you know we we hope that he's not gonna pull a spike and just stick around forever but they definitely want to keep him around for the next big segment but that's the sort of outside the not even outside the box but outside almost the parameters because in the world of sort of of supers gaming that we're doing this is not a usual move even in you know, even though you can find individual cases in the literature that say, well, I guess sometimes Punisher and Daredevil have to team up, but by and large, you know, it's heroes one side, bad guys on the other side, never the twain shall meet. So, that that was the sort of loose cannon, Scooby out of the box thinking that Zach is very good at as a player and, you know, it contributes a great deal. So, I guess the way that I would say if you are a player and you want to be a loose cannon, just make sure that you're clever and interesting more often than you're self-indulgent or time-wasting and just make sure that those are the, those are the balance beams you're walking and know that, right?
0: Right. And clever and interesting in this case means furthering the narrative, having a a fun thing happen that moves the story forward, not so that you're introducing an opportunity for a new cool thing to happen rather than adding another obstacle for your fellow players to overcome because you're being the goofball, because the, right. uh, the classic downside of the loose cannon character, who is sometimes the, the sort of power gamer or uh, butt kicker, who gets bored while people are talking and planning in you know the classic other version of that. Well, I just punch somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the lone wolf character because they haven't gone off to a tavern in another town to punch somebody.
1: They're, doing right, they're, it. they're punching <laughs> someone right there in the King's audience room.
0: Right. And so the problem there is that that gets you further away from the goals that everybody else was trying to pursue and introduces a new obstacle. That's a pain uh, for the other characters. If they have to, participate and join the rumble. And it is also a pain for the GM. It's like, okay, now I've got this sidetrack, which is fine, but I got to figure out a way to make that sidetrack hook back up into, if not necessarily the plot, because maybe you have a possible number of directions, things can go, but you've got to move it back into somewhere more interesting than the Kings guards, hauling you off and and throwing you in, in the clink. Now, if they throw you in the clink and then the guy you're in the clink with has a clue, aces that's Mm -hmm. great but of course this is exactly what this segment is all about is how to how to do that and i guess another tip then in addition to finding a way for the obstacles that the loose cannon introduces to become plot forwarding devices is to also indicate to the other players and protect the other players for the consequences of that so the sort of bummer way To do the I punch the courtier in the throne room thing is, okay, now you all get attacked by the guards and you all get thrown in the clink. Whereas the funner one is that, well, the king obviously knows you're traveling with this guy who's a jerk. And his brother actually also kind of a jerk. He knows what it's like. His brother keeps trying to knock him off and pitch him off the throne, which coincidentally is why he's gathered you here all all together. And that would be a fun surprise when the king doesn't do the accepted thing and say, throw them all in the dungeon, but just, oh, okay. Yeah. We've all got a Scooby and (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've got a Scooby in my family. You've got yours in your group, throw them in the clink. So you could do an unexpected thing where it doesn't blow back on the other players and and keep finding ways to do that so that the because I think the obvious temptation if you're just thinking well what would the realistic thing would be in this situation Uh, which is always a a bad question to ask yourself (laughs) because it usually leads to uninteresting realistic things
1: happening. A lot of forms being filled out.
0: A lot of forms being filled out is what is the surprising way that the loose cannon can uh, suffer his own Backfire without uh, then uh, reverberating onto everybody else in a way that makes a fun new thing for them to do. So they have to, you know, go and figure out a way to get them out of the clink, but make that fun and not annoying and a chance for them to be cool and not Uh, stuck in a worse situation and and, uh, because you don't want them asking the question, why did we invite this person along? Which is a oft-asked question. (laughs) Which is a question
1: that if you're not willing to extend it into the actual game group is a question that doesn't have a good answer in the fictional world. I mean, there may be a reason why, you know, you got that player there who keeps doing that and can't be stopped from doing that by even the most sincere intervention by the fellow players. And, you know, on the other hand, maybe that's the guy you invite over only for miniatures night and not for role playing night. Who can say? Um, where do you fall, Robin, on the question of, because, you know, right? You've, you've dragged that character off into the clink. Fine. He's out of the action now for a bit to the extent he wanted spotlight time. He got it because all the guards dogpiled him, but now he's going to be out of the action for. At least plausibly the next little while, even if there's a chatty prisoner in there with him, where do you fall on on other sorts of penalties? Right. Because you could argue that the king is now like, oh, and take all of his magic items and, you know, turn them over to the court wizard. And then, you know, that's a legitimate punishment. You could even argue that it's a sort of a in-game meta punishment because the reward for right action in uh, F20 is more goodies and the punishment for wrong action should be less goodies. But then that becomes the loose cannon now has the sole goal of getting his, you know, sword back and won't listen to anything else. Where where do you find, is there an in-play way to balance that? Or is it really all just about taking that player aside and saying, stop ruining the game player name here?
0: Right. So I think you've already alluded to the fact of if the, you have one of those players who's consistently getting his fun at the expense of the other players. That's the extreme case of, well, you know, I guess we got a part company,
1: right? Mm. You're
0: you're just ruining everybody's fun constantly. But if there is a desire to play that sort of character, the next question is, in an F20 game, does it penalize the entire group? If your plus three bow gets confiscated, uh, does it uh, annoy everyone if suddenly the plot line is get all of your stuff back instead of, you know, deal with the usurper? What's going to happen that feels that recognizes in the narrative that the character is a a loose cannon without stopping the story or sending it off in a less interesting direction. And so I would say look for, and even punishments, I think is a pretty old school way of looking at, but looking at recognitions and consequences that just affect that character. So rather than, you know, if their magic items are essential to go and fight the, the dragon who turns out to be in league with the brother, that's a drag for everybody, but if you get sort of uh, roughed up a bit or if the wizard puts a special lock on your magic bow that every time you fire it, the king automatically gets a uh, hundred gold pieces out of your
1: pack. <laughs> oh, that's the subscription model bow. Yeah, that's the, the new the one. You, you can't just your, buy the bow anymore.
0: <laughs> he puts your magic weapons on the subscription model. Something that turns the loose canonism back on the loose cannon, recognizes that it's there feels like an emotional punishment if not an actual mechanical punishment but then doesn't stop the story dead and uh now you know the loose cannon character at the end is going to go after the wizard and try to get him to take the lock off but by then you know maybe he's earned it or uh, maybe you can push that in a in another direction but the thing to i think to keep returning to is the question am i penalizing this player for doing what they've obviously shown up to want to do And you've decided that it's not bad enough that you want to stop them from doing it entirely, so you want the punishment to be within the narrative. What feels like a punishment without actually annoying everybody else? And you, the GM, because there's lots of choices you can make as a GM that you then find yourself quite annoyed by, often because you've asked yourself, what would be the realistic thing to do in this situation?
1: I suppose another possibility is that the king says, yeah, I've got a, a brother, the usurper. He's got the same thing. He's got this dragon You don't even want to know what he gets up to with the dragon unless I hire you to kill the dragon, in which case you maybe do want to anyway, but the King might say to the uh, party leader or the person, the King thinks is the party leader, the highest status person in the party. You know what? I'll tell you what you've obviously had to deal with this before. Just tell me what your standard punishment for this is. And we'll just do that. And so it turns it back into a party decision. What do we do about this guy? Because they can't or shouldn't say, "Oh, we just do nothing, we just let him you know poop on the carpet, because <laughs> probably the players have thought of a number of things they would like to do if they're actually annoyed right and this and this is their opportunity to sort of you know have a thing happen and and you could even take it into metagame and they're like, well, is there just some way you know that we could um uh have a, have an ankle bracelet on him that shocks him for a certain number of hit points whenever he does something you know stupid or whatever I mean, I don't know the the, the notion is that the players are now. Involved somehow in executing this rough justice. And ideally, the player of the loose cannon character can also be involved in that conversation. And you can get to the extent that they are playing a loose cannon because they feel it's a fun fictional trope. Uh, the wild guy who can't be contained and less because they are an antisocial jerk. Then they may be able to say, Oh, I get it. Yeah. This, this is a problem. This sounds like that would be a fair. You know, uh, response to it, and by having that discussion both in character and, as most discussions are, also out of character, maybe you create some degree of of complicity and buy in, even on the part of the of of the jerk player character, right?
0: Right, and of course, you can always have the king go, "Oh, you're that one guy in your group. He's a real jerk. He messes everything up. Let's infiltrate him into my brother's party, into his retinue." Yeah. And again, find a find a way to turn that on its head and uh, and make it fun. Well, can you and I are, are nothing if not well secured cannons.
1: Exactly lashed down. Some would say.
0: Yes, and and thus we uh, are not going to subvert uh, any sort of premises or structures. Which means that we're going to stand back, watch this beautiful hand tooled Corinthian leather commercial, and then see what lies on the other side.
1: You listen to the show. You have the Pelgrane Greatest Hits. But do you have the Deep Cuts? From now until Monday, September 6th, you can pick up the Pelgrane Deep Cut PDF bundle from the Pelgrane Shop. At a Deep Cut price. It includes Skullduggery, the role-playing game of verbal fireworks and sudden reversals. The
0: Guy in Reach, the role-playing game of interstellar vengeance.
1: Its companion, the Guy in Reach Gazetteer, an exhaustive cataloging of the planets and places of Jack Vance's classic science fiction. Cycle
0: Owl Hoot Trail, a gritty Clint Eastwood Western, set in a hostile fantasy world, where the outlaw on the other side of the gulch might be a one-eyed half-elf or
1: ornery catobalpuss. And Lorefinder, merging the action-oriented fantasy rules of the Pathfinder role-playing game with the mystery-solving investigative elegance of Gumshoe. Round them up together, buckaroos! And Space Machiavellians! And Mighty Thu Detectives! For a deep cut of 25% off! That's Skullduggery, the guy in reach, the guy... Reach Gazetteer Alahoot Trail and Lorefinder, all together at the Pelgrane Shop at PelgrainPress.com. It's time once again to
0: ask Ken and Robin, and Travis Johnson, beloved Patreon Backer, asks: Tell you what, I wouldn't say no to a primer on using the Bush Wars as a setting for Fall of Delta Green with reference to the wild geese. Madman Mike Horne died recently, too, which seems relevant. So, Ken, I think uh, that's your cue for <laughs> one of your classic explainers.
1: One of my classic explainers. Now, the young folks may hear the word Bush Wars and think, that's Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes. <laughs> I had a d- different kind of Bush. But also, no. These are wars that took place in the Bush, which is sort of the South African way of saying outback. Or frontier, if you, if you want to say that. And, uh, South Africa fought those wars by proxy. The, the clever way to fight wars in other people's countries. They, they had two of them. One was called the Rhodesian Bush War, uh, which is called the second Chimurenga by the other side. And since they won, maybe they get to call it what they want. And the Angolan Bush War, which was fought in Angola as the name sounds but also in namibia and of course the namibians call it the namibian war of independence so we're already you know stepping on landmines not for the last time in this discussion uh, when we talk about the bush wars but broadly speaking these are a series of wars revolutionary wars launched against white supremacist regimes south africa at that time was governing uh, namibia under the name of southwest africa as a un mandate and then the un said well, if you're going to treat it that way, you can't have a mandate. And South Africa said, la, 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 can't hear you. So the various uh, guerrilla movements, uh, the one in Namibia was known as uh, SWAPO and its armed wing was PLAN or SWALA first became PLAN in 1969. It had Soviet training in Rhodesia, which at that time was a, a white minority state that had declared unilateral independence from Great Britain because Great Britain didn't want to give a explicit white minority state its independence. They wanted there to be at least a lick and a promise toward equality. And uh, the Rhodesians weren't having it. White Rhodesians weren't having it. So, they um, uh, declared unilateral independence in the context of two insurgencies against them. The Zanu party, led not quite yet by Robert Mugabe, but spoiler, he's who winds up leading it. Oh, and their armed wing Zanla, which had Chinese support, and Zapu, which was led by a fellow named Nkomo and its armed ring was Zipra and it had Soviet support. And what support means is that the Soviets, the East Germans, the Cubans on the one side or the Chinese and Albanians on the other side would send basically non-commissioned officers and technical advisors to train the guerrilla movement, guerrilla movement, provide cadre for their fighters and then also send commissars out to educate them in proper Maoist slash Brezhnevite thought.
0: So and what was their their benefit for doing this? What were, what were they getting out of
1: this? Well, the first thing that they were getting out is the destabilization of South Africa, because South Africa at the time was an American ally. The Americans were less or more delighted to have this ally. But what South Africa did have was a gigantic percentage of the world's chromium platinum group metals and other very important things that you make jet engines out of. There's other stuff that you can make with South African minerals, but that's the, that's the sort of the, the key point. And to the extent you can disrupt or add costs to America building jet engines, that's all good. Also, of course, Rhodesia and South Africa were both, you know, very anti-communist. So to an extent, it's also, well, we'll teach you, we'll give you something to be anti-communist about. Um, and there's the sort of broad Leninist notion of mounting the revolution you know, all the way across the world, you know, forget cost benefit. It's just the right thing to do if you're a Marxist-Leninist or, in Mao's case, a Maoist. So, that's the sort of the the big geopolitics of it. The local question, the guerrilla wars in Namibia begin in 1966, very small-scale infiltration, mostly put down by the South African police which is sort of a mounted police corps. And the guerrillas are hiding out in Angola, which is at that point fighting its own revolutionary war against Portugal. So, the guerrillas would hide out in Angola in rebel-held territory in Angola and then sneak across the border into Namibia. The same basic thing was the pattern in Rhodesia, except the rebels were hiding in Mozambique, which was likewise fighting a revolutionary liberation war against Portugal and sneak across the border into Rhodesia, Zanu, because of their Maoist uh, training, were doing more intensive send people out to live among the peasants, which mostly meant murder the peasants, because I said Maoist. And so they were a a different sort of threat. They were operating, as I say, out of Mozambique. Uh, ZAPU was operating out of Zambia. I think both of them had Uh, safe houses in Zambia. But it's sort of border countries that are either uninterested or unable to control the guerrillas in their presence, send the guerrillas out to destabilize those countries. So, like I say, during the classic 60s, it's pretty small scale. Someone in Moscow and Beijing unlatches the doors to the landmine warehouse and sends landmines to both these groups or all three of these groups. And they begin planting landmines in the rural roads of Zimbabwe and or Rhodesia at the time and Namibia. And that began to interfere with police patrols. So it was basically the IEDs, except they didn't have to eye them. They just had the EDS. And so they were mounting fundamentally IED war against the Rhodesian police and the South African police. That then escalated it into straight up military campaign. South Africa sent the army into Namibia and immediately expanded the war into Angola. That was in 1973. The white Rhodesian government basically began cross border raids very aggressively about that same time in the seventies. Got even more so once Mozambique becomes independent in 1975. White Rhodesia now realizes they're basically entirely cut off. The war becomes an existential threat. Both sides escalate. Uh, Zappu blows up the main oil dump in Salisbury, the capital of uh, Rhodesia, takes out about a third of the country's oil supply, which is not a little. And by then we're into the, we're definitely into the seventies. And in 1979, the war ends by ceasefire. There are elections in 1980. Uh, Mugabe wins the elections because the Shona ethnic group that is the backbone of Zanu is the biggest one in Rhodesia. And well, nothing bad ever happened in uh, Rhodesia after that. In Namibia, the Angolan civil war takes over right after the Portu- the war against Portugal with South Africa in the mix. Cuba sends 36,000 troops into Angola in 1975 basically to counter the South African presence. So Cuba and South Africa are fighting not just a proxy war, but pretty much a direct war in Angola until apartheid goes away in 1991 or 1990. And then that is when the uh, Namibians get their independence because South Africa no longer being an apartheid state is no longer interested in maintaining an apartheid colony and uh, Namibia uh, becomes independent. So that's sort of where we are. So in the sixties, the classic sixties, of fall of delta green it's still relatively low firing a guerrilla war it gets really loud in the 70s the connection to the wild geese and madman mike horror is that a lot of rhodesians especially you know those with experience in the uh rhodesian police and the Sea Louse scouts the special forces they take higher paying jobs elsewhere as mercenaries Generally in Biafra in uh, Nigeria, the big, gigantic, horrendous war uh, in the late 60s. And so similarly, there are South African mercenaries. There's the South African and Rhodesian governments don't hire mercenaries because they're, you know, they're already the Western military force. Mercenaries generally show up uh, in a country where there's no Western military force in either direction, uh, which is why they're so prevalent in Congo and then in Biafra, because neither of those countries has either a great power patron like France or a, uh, a, a large Western military force. Rhodesia's military force isn't that large, but it's not a very large country. So, um, there are 300 American enlistees in the Rhodesian army. It's, they're not mercenaries. They literally just sign up to be part of the army. They're not in a unit or anything. They call themselves the crippled eagles, but they're, you know, they're just there. They're for looking for hashtag trouble trouble reasons they signed up um, <laughs> i mean their reasons probably don't bear a lot of examination but anyway they, they they do that so they're not technically mercs the cia does have about 500 mercs in angola basically trying to fight the communist mpla faction in angola to cut out a bridge a beachhead for the non-communist angolan side to hold out uh, coincidentally along the border with Namibia so that they will simultaneously cut off the, the plan at the knees and also, you know, give the non-communist forces in Angola a, uh, Unita a, uh, an opportunity to hang on. That works about as well as everything else the CIA does in the seventies. And as I mentioned, the Cubans dump in you know, s- several divisions of troops, which makes 500 mercenaries one or the other pretty irrelevant.
0: So uh, uh, Michael Hoare, uh, quickly give us uh, some more background on him. And then we're going to have to get to the part where we add uh, Cthulhu and Delta Green to
1: all of this. Exactly. Mike Hoare, born in 1919, fought in uh, the CBI, China-Burma-India Theater in World War Two. ended up as a major, uh, moved to South Africa in 1948, did sort of um, wilderness touring and uh, tourist work, didn't Much like that, it was too boring for him. So, he became a mercenary officer in Katanga, one of 400 mercenaries fighting for the Katangan separatists under the leadership of Moise Chombi. He then came back into the Congo in 1964, during a time when Chombi was in a coalition government with the government of uh, Congo. This is during what's called the Simba Rebellion. And Chombi remembers his old buddy, Horror and he says, if you could get a unit of mercenaries, we would pay them. So he raises something called Unit 5 Commando, nicknamed the Wild Geese, which is a term used for Irish mercenaries who fled newly in Protestanted Britain and uh, mostly fought in France. So he names his, his unit the Wild Geese. There's 300 men. They famously are Arguably, they are critical to the relief of Stanleyville, which was at that time uh, occupied by the uh, Simbas and was massacring a lot of uh, Westerners and generally comported themselves, you know, I don't necessarily want to say with dignity, but they were not an awful lot worse than any other combatant in the side. And they were a pretty good mercenary unit, which is something since most mercenary units are kind of terrible. He's only one out of uh, about five similarly sized battalions of mercenaries but he's the one that wrote the famous book. He offered his services to both sides of the Biafra war. Neither side Nigeria didn't want the, uh, the Mike whore uh, rep because he was already sort of um, famous as a, as a, as a Western tool and uh, Biafra couldn't pay him. Mercenaries in Biafra were making $1,700 a month, which is a lot for 1968. So uh, without mercenary work really happening, he's sort of on his own hook, maybe talking to some guys, Attempts a coup in the Seychelles in 1981. He and 55 guys fly to the Seychelles. One of them goes through the anything to declare line with a AK-47 in his bag. (laughs) I I do declare I'm about to stage a coup. I declare I'm about to stage a coup. Well, what he staged was a firefight at the airport that led Mike Hoare to run away and hijack an Air India jet and fly it back to South Africa. And then, of course, he was arrested, and he served uh, 33 months for that hijacking. Uh, While in uh, jail, he studied Catharism and uh, wrote a book on them. As you do when you have time in your hands. So, there is our Gnostic connection to Mike Hoare, and believe me, that took some doing. Um, And The Wild Geese, of course, became the title and, in, in many ways, the inspiration for the novel and movie The Wild Geese. And the author of the novel was a Rhodesian policeman. So, we see how it all sort of folds around and the plot of the wild geese fictionizes a rumor that Jombi actually had escaped from Algerian custody with some uh, mercenaries to try and retake Katanga, but uh, was turned around on the, on the tarmac and sent back to Algeria to die. That may or may not have happened, but it, it, it's the sort of rip from the headlines thing that a good thriller uh, uses and the wild geese say what you want about it. It's a pretty good movie and a pretty good thriller, all other things aside. But that's, that's the sort of stew into which the CIA and, therefore, fictively, Delta Green are jamming in their oars in the 60s, 70s, and even early 80s to an extent.
0: Right. So it feels like this bridges not just the fall of Delta Green, but the 70s Delta Green that exists only in our hearts Ken. You and I, the bell bottoms and big mustache. That's right.
1: The big mustache the, the, Delta the, Green. The
0: malaise of uh, Delta Green as right.
1: well. They, they think, they you know, they only thought they were cowboy Delta Green in the 90s. They're super cowboy Delta Green in the 70s, wearing their leather hats and their paisley vests.
0: Yeah. So, what sort of Cthuloid things are uh, actually going on to envelop our characters as if they're not in enough
1: trouble uh, in all of these uh, wars and rebellions? Well, Lovecraft, to the extent we want to bring him in here, had the same a racist notion about the uh, Great Zimbabwe ruins as everyone else, that they could not possibly have been built by the Shona people, that would be crazy. Shonas are, you know, uh, African. They must have been built by Phoenicians or, to Lovecraft, the fishers from outside, alien beings. And so if there is maybe not Great Zimbabwe, but there is a anomalous stone fort at Inyanga, Rhodesia, that is not like anything else Um, or in Yanga, Zimbabwe now, that is not like anything else there architecturally. It's got plants that are not from the area. So, you could imagine that there is a time jump or some other kind of a weird mythos phenomenon in in Yanga that is, of course, right in the middle of the Rhodesian Bush War. And so, the, the Delta Green needs to infiltrate either it's guys into the Crippled Eagles, or it has to uh, figure out some other way of getting into the Rhodesian Bush War, ideally without, you know, getting made by the CIA, which is also uh, screwing around in Mozambique at this time. Another possibility, of course, there's a lot of stuff Lovecraftian in the Congo. You got your white apes, you got your Anziks. In the Delta Green continuity, there is even a giant Yithian outpost in the Congo called Thule, because the Karatechia discover it first. It's uh, at Itoko, up in the uh, jungle in the s- sort of Stanleyville Simba uh, area. So, in the uh, 60s fall of Delta Green, there is a canonical operation called Operation Kurtz, which is a, a Delta Green attempt to put down a a risen avatar of Nilathotep. It's sort of the- a-, a dry run for the operation that will eventually destroy Delta Green in Cambodia. In, in this one, it works. In others, it does not. So, you could have Either echoes of Operation Kurtz, you know, there's a loose end we didn't tie off, or it can be a, well, since we were doing Operation Kurtz, we've found that Yithian site, and we'd like to go look at it. There are completely legitimately natural nuclear reactors in Gabon, where the uranium is so thick in the ground and so dense that it creates natural critical reactions. So, you could easily say, oh, that's an old Yithian nuclear dev- pile, And you could say maybe there's a Yithian nuclear reactor somewhere that's still pumping out the RADs. And in addition, it's causing some sort of hypergeometric mythos event every time, you know, a certain stellar configuration goes over and then there's a radiation pulse from the Yithian reactor. So it might just be as simple as let's go shut down this Yithian reactor in Angola. And oh, right. There's a bunch of CIA mercenaries and Cuban troops and South African helicopters (laughs) in our way between us and it.
0: Right. And so there's the possibility that all of the radiation will open up a portal. You will fall into it. So will the mercenaries. There will be the good old Yithians eons ago uh, hanging around in their Yithian civilization. All of a sudden you've got heavily armed uh, units and uh, you can uh, possibly strike a deal with them or they will try to wipe you. Do you team up with the other heavily armed humans who you were just fighting in order to survive the assault of the Ithians? Do you divide and conquer? Does one faction of the Ithians hire one side and uh, hire the other side? There's all sorts of uh, possibilities of sort of, uh, you know, uh, you might think you're falling in- into a hollow earth, but really you're just falling into an eons ago uh, the Ithian civilization.
1: And that way that sets up the famous Roland the Thompson gunner versus an Allosaurus crossover that Warren Zevon fans have been crying out for.
0: Exactly. Well, now that we're getting onto uh, crossover events, It's time for us to cross over this commercial and see what lies on the other side.
1: The Best of Ask the is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six-guns role-playing game, Western. How do you
1: say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvigeln on drive through. Step in once again as the voice of reason to keep this show going, aided by beloved Patreon backers Martin Runquist, Nate Merritt, James Candelino, Urs Blumentritt,
0: and Alexander Zimmerman.
1: The statues on their plinths, the scrolls in their cases, the murmuring of tweed-suited intellectuals, all the susurrus, the background, the decor, if you will, of the history hut, that noblest of huts. And as we open it, we are greeted by beloved Patreon backer Keelan O'Hay, who would like to ask about catching the show at the Parisian morgue In the Belle Epoque, Keelan knows the kind of question that will get an answer, and that question is, the Belle Epoque? Robin, what have we got going on in the morgue in Paris besides, you know, dead bodies?
0: Well, I think we know everywhere where there are dead bodies, there are tourist attractions. Yeah. And in fact, uh, this is what the morgue in Paris became during the 19th century, all the way up to the Belle Epoque. In fact, all the way to 1907, when someone got the idea to To close it, that it was unseemly. (laughs) And so the morgue was relocated shortly before the Belle Epoque period from a a dreary, worse precinct into a a new modern facility. But it wasn't so modernized that they stopped putting the corpses on public display for the edification of visitors.
1: Well, that's just morgue gentrification, Robin. That'll happen.
0: And so this is just behind Notre Dame. It's in a uh, what at the time is a splendidly creepy part of town, especially late at night between uh, two bridges. Uh, it's a fog-shrouded area, and uh, certainly your uh, characters in uh, the Yellow King uh, Paris segment will be uh, prowling around at night. They're not going to necessarily just go by during the day. And any investigative game, of course, is going to you're going to need to go to the morgue to examine bodies that are found there. There's uh, or you want to consult the Government Toxicology Lab, that's where that is. So there's all sorts of reasons to go there. And as I said, it became a tourist attraction. Now, the original idea was just that if there are unknown people who need to be identified, and uh, a big category of those are just people who wash up on the banks of the Seine, but also just other unidentified bodies, including accident victims and murder victims and other people who have come to fatal misfortunes, uh, what you would do is you would lay them out on a slab uh, that was sort of tilted up, they would decorously put little uh, leather bits on top of uh, people's uh, private areas. But other than that, they were displayed in the nude. And there was a window that you would go and, and uh, look through. There are period engravings of this. You can find them on the Internet and get quite a sight of all the, the swells and toffs going in and uh, looking at the uh, at the bodies there. Uh, a railing would be hung over top and their clothing would be dangled from the railing. Least, uh, the clothing was helpful in uh, identifying them. And then, of course, when someone was identified uh, by a family member or or whoever, they were taken away and proper arrangements for burial were made. And they probably wound up in the catacombs to uh, go back to something that we've talked about in the past. And that is also emblematic of uh, creepy things in Belle Paris. The tourist guidebooks of the time uh, told people about this. But there was a note of regret. For example, the one that I have uh, says it's a sad and sinful sight and may not be without its uh, pathos, admit the glitter and gaiety of the French capital. It is, however, more prudent to avoid it, especially if the visitor has sensitive sensibilities. So Aww. they were letting people know that maybe they didn't want to go there, but they were still letting people uh, know what it was. Now, this was also part of the industrialization and modernization. That was all the rage in Paris at the time. So that as of 1881, they had really the first facility that could refrigerate corpses. So the room in which they were displayed was chilled to uh, zero centigrade. Before then, uh, they would just, uh, which is, of course, before the action of the, the Yellow King game, there would just be a rivulet of cold water that would run over the bodies and keep them going for a little while longer. But that's only going to last you so long before you have to take them off display. And then there'd just be the clothing to to go by. People who are concerned about the propriety of this will be pleased to know that after 1883, the employees at the morgue were no longer allowed to sell the clothing. So everything is, you know, on the up and up. Also, uh, criminals were not submitted to public inspection. But of course, that would be Dead known criminals, and wait a minute. <laughs> the whole purpose of this is that you don't know who they are. How do you know they're criminals? You don't. So guess what? There'll be if you're looking for a criminal and turns up dead as one of the art students in, in the Yellow King game, you might well find them uh, there. When corpses were taken off display for uh, inevitable reasons, because uh, you know, even kept cold, eventually. Uh, They got past their sell-by date. uh, And then they would be photographed. This started in 1877. And there was also a sort of an adjunct area in the foyer where you would be able to look at photographs of the dead and possibly match them to uh, the person you were uh, seeking. They got around 900 corpses a year. And as soon as this facility was built, it was already cramped because they put a whole bunch of stuff in it. And so this was also the place that autopsies were performed. And as I said before, there is a toxicology lab. And this is where your first generation of forensic scientists would go to hear lectures and uh, uh, learn this new uh, craft. So there's countless possible ways to get your character involved uh, with this. They may make regular visits to this over the course of a campaign. Uh, you can check Therese Rikin, the novel by Zola. Has a a detailed description of it then. And as I said before, there's engravings of it. And uh, as I was uh, working on this, I recalled that I had a bit of a Mandela effect moment where I could swear that in one of the books of true crime that I read about this, it described it somewhat differently as there being a place where people were set about in positions of that there's sort of a parlor area where people were displayed and that admission was charged. And I can no longer find any reference. To this. So I suspect that either this was a reality shift, and of course, that reality shift can happen in a game of reality horror to you, that they can show up at the morgue and find out it's become even weirder since the last time uh, they got there. Or it could just be good old fashioned bad translation and not wanting to uh, ruin a story that's uh, too good to ruin. So in my game, uh, the morgue actually was sort of a, a cold open, as it were, <laughs> that then led to something completely different, which is the characters were led to identify a corpse at the at the morgue, and then the gargoyles from nearby uh, Notre Dame attacked them, and it turned out to actually not be a morgue story at all, but a uh, a gargoyle story. As a player. If you're playing an art student, you can do what was done at the time, and you can have your character regularly visit the morgue in order to sketch the faces of the dead, and that can't possibly lead to any sort of horror scenario that you and I can think of. Can or you, your deuced peculiar thing could be that you went to visit and you saw the eyes of one of the corpses open, or even briefly glimpsed there, and you thought you saw yourself on one of the slabs, or perhaps one morning when you're. Drinking away your hangover at your favorite uh, morning cafe, one of your art student pals can pop by and be utterly shocked because they just seen you there the other day at the morgue, and then you have to go and investigate exactly uh, why uh, your body is, uh, is there at the, at the morgue. Ken, I'm sure I'm leaving other morgue possibilities uh, untouched, but you'll pick them up.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel like it is my job to mention in this context the Munich dead house, the Leichenhaus, or like from the same root as lich. So meaning corpse house that is mentioned in the short story, Dracula's guest uh, in which Jonathan Harker, if he, if such the narrator is visits the dead house and sees the bodies. Uh, they used to be put on zinc trays. And because even in Munich uh, in the winter, things would get a little ripe. They would be surrounded by flowers to kill the smell. And uh, that sort of, weird, uh, super romantic with a capital R super Victorian attitude is I think part of the big fun of a death house. And you don't have to go to Paris to have a death house. As I've mentioned, Munich had them lots of uh, places in cold climates did. And Munich, for example, had a law that no one could be buried until three days had passed. their de- being declared dead because they were so scared of being prematurely buried. So there was even a bell that you could ring in the death house, if you woke up and you were like, oh, here I am in the death house. There are no records of the bell ever having been rung in those conditions. I'm sure they were rung by hilarious pranksters all the time.
0: Well, and that's a scenario into itself, right? Is that you're somehow hornswoggled into taking over as guards at a, a death house. Oh, there's, and, uh, there's a
1: classic uh, Victorian story called In the Death House, where two friends are such bosom buddies that one promises to keep a watch on the other one in the death house. For all three days to make sure that they're you know that they didn't uh uh just pass into a coma, and of course bad things happen, but yeah, you could very easily you, you one imagines the guards at the death house do not make a lot of money, they could be easily bribed, especially by a gentleman to look the other way while you sit vigil but in fact are actually doing whatever horrible necromancy you're there to do. And when I was looking up the Munich death house, I discovered Toronto had death houses, Robin, and it had octagonal ones. So it's a, the, the callback you didn't expect but must have been waiting for uh to our old octagonal building episode so an octagonal death house if there's a a better way to store up necromantic lay energy i'd like to hear it right right and so yeah. if,
0: if you have a good honest canadian corpse who uh revives and it's not your you know living person who's been in a coma and needs to ring a bell you don't want him getting out and so the more corners you have you confuse them until they lapse back into a into death. After
1: back into death.
0: Realizing that coming back from the the dead is disorderly and contrary to good government. And it's so just
1: it's just simple. It's just simple. Really, it's a public health thing. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. To have an octagonal death house, but dead houses are are you know there's dead houses in Scotland. Basically, anywhere where it gets cold, too cold to dig a grave in the winter, they would have death houses. And then some of them, like Munich or uh, Paris, would have very public viewing hours and make it a tourist. Hey, bring the kids, let them look at dead people. And and that I think is, is the other sort of side of it is over and above the, the strong possibilities of, of vampires. You've also got a, uh, a setting for like your gargoyle adventure, a sort of a, in the midst of, uh, of death we are in life, but also a gargoyle type episode, which is good stuff.
0: Right. Well, I think before we get dime bomb, any gargoyles, it's time for us to, uh, get on over here, uh, get in a little boat. Go between the two bridges across the river. And on the other side of the river is not the other half of Paris, but another segment.
1: Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality.
0: Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax.
1: Doors open to endless Victorian hallways.
0: Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork
1: limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us.
0: And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF Now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream Planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of
1: surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release, Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler
0: can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research.
1: God help them. That's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol, both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of Arc Dream publishing.
0: It's time once more to wend our way up the creepy cobweb stairs Uh, We're going to stop at the landing and wave to the mystical fire salamander, who's there in a portrait on the wall, as friendly as ever, and then head on in to the parlor where awaits the consulting occultist. And this time around, the consulting occultist is going to reveal his civic allegiances, because, Ken, I've discovered a case that only our consulting occultist with his particular set of esoteric skills can possibly unravel. And my question for you, Ken, is, why is there a floating baby in a clamshell in the Chicago seal?
1: That is a good question. It's really more of a question for the consulting herald than the consulting occultist, but I'll take it. Well, th- that's in the veilout version. Right, yeah. <laughs> we-, we know where this is going to go. The-, the seal of the great city of Chicago was designed in 1837 by a committee headed by Mayor William B. Ogden and two aldermen, Josiah Goodhue and Daniel Pearsons. I have not yet determined which of them is the guy who actually got stuck with the seal designing job.
0: Well, I, if you're called good here, you get stuck yeah, with the graphic probably design. get stuck
1: with it. And so the whole seal is one of those ridiculously overlarded seals that people get in the 19th century. A shield American with a sheaf of wheat on its center, a ship in full sail on the right, a sleeping infant on the top, an Indian with bow and arrow on the left, And the motto, Herbs in Horto, City in a Garden, at the bottom of the shield with the inscription, City of Chicago, Incorporated, 4th of March, 1837, around the outside edge of said seal. And those are the arms of Chicago. And in proper American fashion, they were given to us by ourselves, uh, or at least by a committee of aldermen.
0: And, And people will be wondering before we go on, what is a shield bracket
1: American? It is a shield with a blue star field on top and 13 red stripes, up and down stripes. I forget the... So the the original
0: Captain America it
1: is uh, shield. The, the original, original Captain America shield, yes. But with a sheaf of wheat in its center to ruin it because <laughs> graphic design, what is it? No, we we also have a wonderful thing that is called a civic design. It is not our shield, but it is a a Y shape with uh, waves in it. And it is uh, to uh, recognize the 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 two branches of the Chicago River and it looks boss. And that should be our seal, this ridiculous nonsense with the Sheaf of Wheaton, the Indian, and the boat, and the rest of it. But whatever.
0: Right. Well, you're only having a weird, badly designed seal like this for mystical reasons. Exactly. you got to get all the ingredients in there. But because it's all again, about the floating baby. we're getting baby. ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so, and I understand there's a bit of a transformation involving the floating baby. That it was originally on a cloud, even though it was supposed to be in a clamshell, but no one wanted to draw it on a clam. Elucidate,
1: Ken. Yes. As you heard from my description of the original act... There is no mention of a clamshell. It's just a floating baby. And so they drew it on a cloud. And at some point, someone said, what's that baby floating on? And they said, a clamshell. They did that in an amendment of 1854, apparently. Although you can look at depictions of the Chicago seal since then, it's not depicted that way. It really makes the change once they're clearing everything up for the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, and they're like, "Seriously, we got to put something under this baby. It's creeping everyone out." Right. And so they because C-
0: realistically, in- you know, if that was a consideration here, you'd you'd put the baby lying on the ground level where babies could lie. But no, yeah. the babies, this is a tip off that this is a mystical baby. This is no regular baby because he's mm-hmm. floating. And then you got to, oh, well, let we got go put them on a cloud. And I can see that because cherubs, yeah. babies float on clouds. And then I guess there was uh, that was a little too Christian allegorical and they had to go classical to put the baby in the clamshell. Are, yep. are clams associated
1: with Chicago? Well, there's zebra mussels in the lake now. There weren't then. <laughs> I believe that there were some sort of uh, bivalves in the palmy days. The baby, it lies down. It's supine. Until 1918, when suddenly they start drawing him sitting up. So, I'm not sure why the baby, I mean, maybe he sat up to fight the, the hun, you know, who can right. say.
0: Well, I think he was thought to be somewhat of a slacker infant. Right. And needed to sit up to be part of the go-getting 20th century Chicago.
1: The boostery Chicago. And people will say that the baby merely represents the newfound found city that it's just this new little baby city, just a little baby. And by 1918, well, now it's a toddler. Now it's a a problem child. It can sit up and other people will say, oh, no, no, no. The baby in the shell is, uh, is a pearl. Because Chicago is the pearl of the lakes, right? And so the so
0: is Chicago the pearl of the lakes separately? Is this or there's a I mean
1: That that nickname is not one that I was familiar with before <laughs> researching the Chicago seal. Okay, but if so you were more, asking, more is it up? more okay, pearly gotcha. than Cleveland or Milwaukee? The answer is hell's yes. <laughs> yeah, if that's the scale, yeah, you're the, the pearl Right? Yes, yeah. given given the lakes, Robin. Yes, it's the pearl of them or. Maybe even the diamond of the, of the lakes. Who can say pearls, of course, represent the planet Venus and the goddess Venus. They represent, like babies, purity and innocence and love. Jesus repeatedly refers to the kingdom of heaven as a pearl, which is maybe our tip off because in the Gnostic hymn of the pearl, uh, which was probably written around 180, 200 A.D. Uh, it appears in the Acts of Thomas, not the Gospel of Thomas, but the Acts of Thomas. And it represents Gnosis, because the hero of the hymn, the protagonist of the hymn, sojourns in Egypt and is sent to get a pearl that uh, is surrounded by a dragon. And rather than do that, he just hangs around eating Egyptian food and, and doing nothing. And his parents write him an angry letter saying, where's the pearl? And so he's like, oh, right, yes. And so he goes and he uh, defeats the dragon, gets the pearl and brings it back to his parents, which is all a metaphor for what we are in this world of sin and devilry is uh, we're, we've forgotten that we have a pearl of truth and knowledge that we're meant to go get. And so you could argue that the addition of the clamshell is making manifest that which should be hidden. Because I feel like if the baby is representing gnosis, is representing true knowledge, right, the true art, then putting it in the clamshell sort of, you know, hangs a lantern on it. Not to be insensitive to Chicago fire sufferers, but it does. It hangs a lantern on it, and it makes the thing then sort of so obvious that it can't be that obvious, if you follow me. So my thesis is that... The, the little floating baby indeed represented some sort of divine inspiration, right? That the notion that the city is basically got this sort of um immaculate conception, right? There's a boat and an Indian, they can't make a baby. So, the baby comes out of, you know, this uh interaction between the sea and the land, comes out of the air and joins the sea and the land elementally. And that's Probably the original magical argument for why they have a floating baby. And then the clamshell just underlines it and dots the eye and says, the floating baby is gnosis. It's secret knowledge. That's what he's doing there floating around. So the
0: the 1918 point, when the baby goes from supine to seated indicates that the latent gnosis has has awakened immunitized. Mm-hmm. And so what, what's happening in 1918 Chicago to imply uh, greater gnosis there
1: well there there is um uh, there's going to be a gigantus race riot the next year so one hopes that's not it although maybe that's the the birth pangs but
0: that's really the the counter force to the gnosis
1: right yes the the anti-gnosis um in happier news in uh 1918 chicago's signature candy company the fannie mae candy store opens up so we have a a lot of stuff happening sort of around the edges Uh, The Eastland disaster, famously in uh, 1915, when the excursion ship Eastland turns over and drowns, I think, 600 people. It's a gigantic disaster. Then you have the Spanish flu. And then it may have been, not that the race riot is the backlash to the Gnosis. It may have been that the, you know, sitting the baby up is the attempt to counter all of this awful stuff and has has only a a modest effect. Um, You do see... As that baby sits up, you see the sort of second birth of of, of Chicago, the sort of the second uh, Chicago Golden Age with Ben Hecht and all those guys blowing up. So there may have been some aspect of secret knowledge being shared out within Chicago by the the shadowy forces uh, behind the baby, the 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 undying Alderman Goodhue, possibly held in a death house somewhere.
0: Right. It, the question might, in fact, be who was born in 1918 along with that baby who uh, would would go along with that. But uh, I think that might be a, a calendrical question for uh, another day. So I'll just end by asking, uh, so what powers do you and other Chicagoan masters of the occult draw from from the seal?
1: Well, I personally draw most of my power from the Chicago flag, which is the best flag of any city, I'm going to say in the world, but definitely in America, and as I've mentioned previously, big, big fan of the, of the Chicago device. The powers that are drawn from the seal, I think are focused on that. Like I say, that union of forces. You've got your sea, you've got your land, you've got your European boat, you've got your Native American, all of it energizing the baby and creating that herbs in Horto, the, uh, the city in a garden. And it is that sort of city of the new revelation, if you will, the city of Eden. Uh, city builded Enoch. So you're you 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 have got the, the the city of um of Enoch at the beginning and you've got the city of the New Jerusalem at the end. Chicago, bang right there in the middle as so, always. So it's a balance between the the Arcadian and the industrial. Exactly. The the baby is like the the transformer, right? It's it steps it down from one to the other even.
0: Well I think uh, on that note we can all uh, go and, and look for our own symbols of Gnosis in our own cities and towns, see what's on our various seals and I'm sure uh maybe well, I'll be surprised and find out that there's uh, babies in clamshells in all of them. I didn't do a survey. I just right. saw the one in Chicago, and I didn't keep going after that. So. And,
1: and Well, yeah, obviously, once you see the one in Chicago, that's when you pull the big floating baby ripcord. Yeah, that's, that's when I write that down in the script. Demand answers.
0: Yeah. And uh, speaking of scripts, <laughs> a week from now, we'll have another episode that's based on a script that is very similar. may even come from the very same Google Doc. Who can but say? Until then, Can and I and the floating baby are all waving goodbye, but we'll see you next week stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors
1: Atlas Games Pell Grain Press Ask for Gown Arc Dream Dark Tower and Pro Fantasy Software Music as always is by James Simple Audio Editing by Rob Borges Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin
0: Keep our clamshell baby aloft by pitching in at our Patreon joining such levitating backers
1: as Carl Schmidt Louis Sylvester Luke Silburn Matthew Baskins And Michael Bowman.
0: Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash
1: user slash Ken Robin. Unnerve your co-workers with our latest design, quietly judging you.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff.